Good morning. Um, I guess I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'll start. Uh, and then David will come up and clean up the mess. What I'd like to talk to you about today is, and I had to have the official slide up there first and then go to my slide. Um, I think it's really quite interesting for me because this conference two years ago, I gave the introductory lecture and I, and I warned Nick Royal at the time it was probably dangerous to give me a mic and 45 minutes and no script. And it, it didn't turn out too disastrously. But at that meeting, we introduced to a lot of people the concepts or promoting the concepts of evidence-based medicine and how this can help us. I think today what I'd like to do is take a little bit further on the stepwise road that we're going, and that is to talk about how the data from, from academia and from the research that's done, and I'm going to talk about some of the fallacies of it, some of the problems with it, and how probably in the next by the next conference and the conferences following this, the data that we're going to be using is going to be coming from practice. It has to. And we have to change not our mindset, but the, the systems how we do these things. And so what I'd like to do too is give you a little bit of an introduction on where we are and where we need to go to get that data. With that, this is kind of the classical um, Sackett discussion. And, and the best available clinical evidence is where we need to be looking at now. And that best clinical evidence is not going to come from academic hospitals, okay? Because that population that we see and that I do a lot of work in, and I am, I'm the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I didn't call myself fat, but I, you know, I'm part of that problem. In that we do studies for purposes, and they're very designed, controlled studies, and m many of them are for drug approval by um, federal agencies, etc. Those still need to continue, but they are not the only type of data that we need to get into the system to make it practical for the general practitioner out there doing their job and making their job more effective. So we have to do that, help them. And so what, when we talk about practice-based research, what we're really trying to talk about is <clears throat> it's investigations that occur at the level of the practice. Now, some of these slides are a bit wordy because I figured I'd give, give you the printed version because my accent will probably throw you. Um, it's, we, we need to look at all aspects of the data that's out there. Um, and I think that's one of the underpinnings that we're missing now and we're not providing the opportunities for is to get people involved in practice to doing all of these things, which include looking at interventions the, the outcome measures, are they good outcome measures? Do they matter? That's very important, to, do they matter? Um, looking at the protocols that are driven out of academia. And I'll talk about academia as a kind of an <clears throat> evil Darth Vader, um, in that we, we have a lot of reasons why academics do things. They're not always for the benefit of getting better treatments to the patients. Okay, we're self-absorbed in our own way about getting promoted and tenured and get money and all that other things. And so we learn the academic system. And that's not necessarily the best place for things to come out of for you, you and I. If we look at the kind of the circle inquiry that I love this, and I want you to note that this is not new, um, where we really need to be looking at is focusing on the study question. For the longest time, we talked about in evidence-based medicine about how to ask the right question and how to propose it and do this. Well, I think we're beyond that concept. The kind of questions I'm asking are, it, and they need to come from the, the practice, the general practice practitioners is, 
what questions do you have? And the one that I get, and those most of you don't know, my world in, in research is pain management, primarily in osteoarthritis, et cetera. And so I do a lot of work with non and with surgical procedures. But one of the questions I always get asked about my non side is, if I have a dog who's got documented hepatic disease, okay, what do I do with my non usage in that dog? Okay, do I not give them a non Do I decrease the frequency of the dosing? Or do I decrease the, uh, the amount, the milligrams per kilogram? We don't have that data. That data was not needed to be approved by the EU or the FDA. Well, that's really unfortunate. And it's that kind of data that I get asked, and I look at them and go, don't know the answer. You could say the thing about renal dysfunction, and I think we have more data on renal dysfunction than non but you know, that's the kind of question that we need to have percolate up from the practice and not just say, okay, we have a question, now academics, you now fix it. No, this needs to be done at that level. And Dr. Church is going to talk more about this and, and how there are different ways to do it. This slide, actually, I, I took and cut and pasted some slides from my original presentation two years ago, and this is one of them. And we, we lack a lot of the data. We've come a long ways, but, and this is in my world of orthopedics. I'm, by training, an orthopedic surgeon. We didn't have a good study looking at different types of procedures for repair of cranial cruciate injuries until 2013, which actually honestly looked at a couple of different methodologies. Yet we were doing, we've been doing these procedures since the 60s. And we've been changing procedures, and we've had pe- pompous people stand up at meetings like this and say, I do this, and it's the only thing that works. Because most surgeons are legends in their own minds. Where we come into, and this is where we come to, is we come to the point of knowing where, what we have and what we don't have. And, it, and it's called the research practice gap. Okay? And that gap is huge. And it's in everything from production medicine you know, through to, to primary care, both in the, the equine and, and large animal into small. There's a gap everywhere. Okay? That's not a bad thing. We just have to note that that gap exists. And what exactly that gap, why does that gap occur? Well, there's been lots of work on that. And I think this is one of the re- things I want to not debunk, but I think we need to take a critical look at is not just why the gap occurs, but how can we make it better? My goal, and I know Dr. Church's goal, when you leave today, hopefully we've given you something you can actually use tomorrow. I don't like having people give talks where they pontificate about a bunch of crap and then people go home and go, what did I learn from that? What can I use from that? And it's usually absolutely nothing. But hopefully today you can come back and say, okay, these are things that I can do. Okay? So you can see we've got a multitude of things that are going on that prevent this from occurring. And these are somewhat general, but I think you can look at these and you can put in your, in your mind, okay, that's an issue that I have, okay? And this is the great pipeline discussion of dissemination of research to the practice, okay? We want to have the evidence-based practice, and this is the faint pipeline, and I think it's readable back there, but bottom line is there's a whole bunch of external factors which create the system we're in, which don't allow for that practice information to become relevant. Okay? And they, everything from who's going to pay for what? And that's the big, you know, who, who's got the money? In the United States, there was a very famous bank robber, kind of like the great train heist, the famous bank robber. His name was Willie Sutton. And they interviewed him, and they asked him, why did he rob banks? 
And he looked at them incredulously and said, because that's where the money is. And it may sound relatively human, but it's true. And as academics and as in researchers, we, if we don't have money, we can't do the work. Pure and simple. Okay, So we look to where the money is. And that alters what we do. We also have this vicious thing known as peer review. Oh, it's just terrible. I tell you what, they actually want to look at your stuff and criticize you. you know? It's a marvelous system, I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's a marvelous system, but it has it a tendency. It will bias things. It creates an environment of homogeneity. So it's not bad, it's just different. So you go down here, and each one of these you can pick through. The problem is when it gets down to the, to the level of us actually using it in practice, it's kind of, it doesn't do our job. So you're going to see that a little bit later. So with that little bit of, a, of an introduction, I'd like to talk to you about what we can do, including practice-based research. And, and to a certain degree, I'm kind of being blasphemous to my whole following of what I've done and where I am. And you know, we, we want the best quality research. We want to do everything perfect, you know, everything coming out. We can't have qualitative answers. We, yes, well, we can, and we need to. We need to move. As evidence-based medicine said, it's it is the best clinical data available. As I've said it before, with data, there is no bad data. There's just weaker hierarchical data. Okay, so all data is good. You just have to know where to put it when you make your decisions on whether I'm going to trust this data or over some other. And so I think we have to get rid of some of the misconceptions. We can talk about the history. We can talk about the, the definition and purpose, and also some different methodologies of what we can do. And Dr. Church will talk more about some methodologies that I think can really be beneficial to you. Having talked about this before, some of the things that I've heard from people are, oh, you're finally letting anecdotal medicine into evidence base. I'm like, no, that's not the point. That's, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to get everybody involved, but we still have to answer good questions questions with good research. Now, it doesn't have to be randomized controlled clinical trials, but it has to be research that we can, that you have that ever-present line going from one side of the, to the other, which is generalizability versus validity. And as you notice, almost all our studies are at the valid end, and they're horribly non-generalizable. And the smart people have tried to take that straight line and make it into a circle. It doesn't work. And you have to either have, it's either going to be generalizable or it's going to be valid. But all I'm saying is I think we have to start moving the scale so that we're getting more generalizable work that's still valid, okay? It may not be in the scientific mind perfect, it's still good data. And so we, we get this pipeline that we've talked about, and this de dissemination always remains erratic. And academic, if, if academia continues to be our only source, it will continue to be erratic. It will continue not to slow good therapies, it's just not going to get them going as fast as we want them. And again, just to show you this, to remind you, my goal is to have, and I think everybody's here's goal, to have this end down here be just as wide as this, this end, and actually be a flow both ways. That's what we don't have. We don't have the flow from academia to practice in ideas, and we don't have the flow back. It occurs, and there are, I can give you instances where I know of, of how it's gone both ways, but we really need that. Okay. Now, how can we do this? How can we do this? Well, the problem is, first you have to identify the problem. You know? um, and the first thing is, is understanding that this whole focus of this pipeline and this whole focus of how do we look from one end back up and say, gee, here are the problem points, doesn't solve the, the situation. What we have to do is say, okay, how can we change the pipeline? 
How can we make fundamental changes in it so that we do? And, you know, I get a little tired, and you, and you can read probably 15 years worth of discussions and papers on how we need to look at this one-way conceptual situation and make it better. Well, that's not going to work. We're going to have to change it, okay? We're going to have to understand that there is a fallacy of this pipeline, and we have to move forward. So given those limitations, I think what we have to do is say, how can we make more tailorable, actionable work for, from the practice side? How can we get that? How can we get the patients and populations that matter? And that's what we need to do. We need to look. This is being done. This has been done for 10, 15 years. And some of the areas that are actively promoting it, I just give you a couple of op options of those. And there are some very promising inherent approaches to this, okay? And I think what what we have to understand is people that get trained, exquisitely trained, that go out into practice, have inquisitive minds, okay? I get tired of people saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a local practitioner, I'm not a scientist. Yes, you are. You're a scientist from before you were a practitioner, okay? And you ask good questions. You just don't, I mean, many of them are relevant to how, how do I make the practice work and how do I make sure that I get paid? And, you know, there, there are all sorts of questions that are non-veterinary but you still have them. So I think what we have to do is encourage and support systems that act off of the questions that are made by those practitioners and provide them with data on how they're doing, what they're doing, and that will then spur more questions when they see data that suggests what they're doing may or may not be worth. And I'll give you some examples. And there's some one I don't want to uh, plug a talk, but there's a talk coming up I find fascinating in the next session about that will look at a question that, the, about gastroprotectants and steroids. Something we assume works because it sounds logical and physiologically it makes sense. Well, maybe it doesn't. Now this is the other thing I wanted to put. This is a slide that I, I showed last time and we need to encourage participation and decrease the lack of that people say I can't do it. Yes, you can. Okay? And so those of you who have cats will understand this completely. The number of things cats can actually do on command, absolutely nothing. But So the goal we're going to have here for, this whole, for, for our talk today, and hopefully you leave this conference, with understanding how we can bring everybody together, whether it's with practice-based research networks, whether it's practical trials that are done at a multiple practice level or at a single practice level, that's what we need to get done. Okay? Now, there's a very famous saying, and it was quite well done, it was put on, and you may hope you know who Homer Simpson is, one of my heroes, he and I look a lot alike, but Homer always states the obvious, donuts, he loves donuts, okay? Um, but practice-based research should be done in all sets of practices. Duh. Yes, but we don't do it. So how can we do it? How can we go on and ask these questions? Well, Practice-based research networks have popped up all over the world in the last 15 to 20 years on the human side and are growing. And they're also, they, most of them have support from, their, from the, the, the governments because they are a valuable source of information, not only in collecting it, but disseminating it. I think that kind of model has also been growing in veterinary medicine. You probably may not know about a lot of it, but it exists. Okay, Group practices. Now with all the practices that and there's many corporate-owned practices, there's large group practices, there's specialty practices. 
there's enough people and there is a core that can start asking and doing some of these questions. In, in the states across the pond, some of the best research is now coming out of these big practices that are clinical. Um, in fact, most of the FDA, which is our regulatory agency, most of the studies that are done for FDA approval now of drugs are not done in academic settings anymore, academic hospitals. They're done in big practice hospitals, and they're run out of the drug company um, hires these what are called research groups that mo which organize and run these trials. That's where they're coming out of. And that's where it should come out of now. Okay? And individuals, you can do stuff, and I can give you examples. You can do research that is publishable if you want to publish it, that is presentable at meetings, that can affect the, the, your neighbor down the street in a positive way. We're just hopefully going to touch on a few of those. Again, those of you that may not be interested in or uh, familiar with practice-based research networks, I just give you a little one-page you know, discussion that you can look at it. I won't read it, but the bottom line is, is these are primary care people. Okay? These are the people out on the front line that have come together for a variety of reasons that now are asking those questions and developing those studies. Some of those studies are fed down to them, as I said, through the research needs or the uh, regulatory needs. Many, however, are fed the other way. When people start asking questions about what can I do, and you know, we're given this, we, we get these guidelines from different journals. Uh, you know, experts, that's a person who's traveled 50 miles to give a talk. Experts write these things in different um, journals about you know, the best care of equine laminitis, and here's the most recent, or the best care in, in pain management, here are the most you know, the reasons. Some of the people who wrote things are probably in the room right now laughing at me, but I've written those things before. They don't work for a lot of people because they're not in their world. And what we have to do is say, reverse it and, and tell people like me, yo, you less than intelligent individual, stop putting this stuff out because it's not practical to what I do. And that's what these, these networks can do. And so it's really fascinating. Some are affiliated with academia. Most are not. So I really think we can look a long ways down this road and hopefully provide you with some information that we can say, this is important and these practice networks can make it work. Well, there are some inherent problems with these, and obviously organizational cost, personnel, and dedicated time. That's the killer. You know, it all comes back to money. But it's doable. And I don't want people to think that we're just, oh, can't do it, move on. I think that really we can. The opportunities are huge. And I think what we need to do is those people that are in the, I hate to use the terminology, but those people that are primarily accountants worried about the bottom line of money need to understand what these things can do for cost savings and improving efficiency. There's a large um, corporate group in the United States known as Banfield, and I'm not associated with them nor am I promoting them. Um, they have a huge session. Section, in fact, they they hired a, a, a veterinary epidemiologist to run it. They have a whole ses section that looks at how their practices treat things, what's been effective, and how they can modify. They run a lot of protocols for veterinarians to follow. The, there's some pros and cons to this. For them, obviously, it's a pro if they can if they can figure out the if they can ask. And, and we know from from work in the human side, too, that these protocols are, can be effective if they're standardized, that people will treat the same disease processes as much more cost-effective and can be therapeutically effective. And so Banfield does the same thing, where they say, okay, if you have a dog with diarrhea, here's your, anal, here's your algorithm. Okay. Well, they found it to be cost-effective for them to improve not only care, 
but from a money standpoint. So it's there, it's out there. And so I think this is the opportunities when people use words challenges and opportunities as fancy words for roadblocks and possible ways we can get around them. But this is what we're looking at. I love this slide. This slide came, comes out from the dentistry world. And what, what practice-based networks can do, what practices can do, what individuals can do, is look at the affair, comparing effective, effectiveness research and efficacy. Two different words. Start with the same letter, but very different. Are they effective? And effective can be anything, as I talked to you about, from the, from the clinical outcome side to the financial side and all points in between. Okay? Are these recommendations that people like me write effective in my practice? Okay? And this is the kind of thing. The other thing is obviously the efficacy trials. Um, and, and I, and I, it's an, there's an interesting group of, that looked at um, the concept of different NSAIDs in my world, the effectiveness of different NSAIDs and um, acetaminophen um, in the treatment of OA in people. Because the classic written thing about that is, is in people, in those of you in the room, and I look at the room and it's genetically, or it's chromosomally a little bit down the middle, but women have much higher, I'm sorry, you're going to get osteoarthritis. It's the way it is. And there's all of these, these, algorithms that say, okay, you need to go acetaminophen first, then go to NSAIDs, then move on. Well, there's a lot of work that was done, that, and that's been in the literature ingrained in rheumatologists and orthopedists for years. Some literature now that says, eh, probably not true. It came from practice-based networks saying, you know, the NSAIDs are a lot more effective. So that's the kind of thing that we have as, you know, rules. You shall do this, and you shall do that, that probably may or may not be true. So there is that point where comparative efficacy research can be done and needs to be done in practice. Okay, a lot of, I hope some of you are still awake and aren't on Facebook. Well, if you are, it's okay. I, wait, till you, wait till you train students now and you sneak behind and look what they're looking at at their computers while you're lecturing. Very humbling. Okay, they really don't care what you're saying. Okay, so what can I do now? Well, I sound a little bit evangelical. I'm sorry, I'm not a Southern Baptist minister telling to heal you right now. Um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I live in the South, but I haven't got, quite got to the religious side of the South. Um, you can become part of the solution. It all starts by asking a question, okay, and making sure that the outcome that you want is measurable. Can we do that, okay? And then follow, the, the key is, is following your patients prospectively. This takes time and effort, but it can be very, very effective. And I just want to give you a classic example, and this is an example that I think almost everybody in this room can relate to. The, the worry we have now with the multidrug resistance bacteria, the MRSAs, okay, or MRSI, MRSIs, whichever you want to use. Okay, so now you're faced on a day-to-day -day situation, we all are, where we ha we've diagnosed an infection, whether it's a urinary tract infection, you know, ears, you name it, wound infection. We all see infections on a daily basis. And one of the things we do is we culture them, correct? Problem is, is at least where I work, the time from when I culture it to when I get the answer back, my patient could be dead. And they'll give me an answer, thank you. It does. Very ineffective. So what, what do we all do? We all empirically treat, right? What are we using for our empirical treatments? Well, we look in the literature. And in urinary tract infections in the United States, the classic is looking back to a, a production that came out of UC Davis by Jerry Ling 
in the 90s and the 80s which say, here are the most common bacteria, here's what they're sensitive to. Well, I'm sorry, but one, I'm not at UC Davis, I'm not in California. Two, I'm 20 years later, and that's not helping me. So how can I change that? Well, it's very simple. You can start, and you should, and I actually do, I have done this for a long time, is all the cultures that I submit, I keep track of what they're sensitive to, what the bug is and what they're sensitive to. Okay? So that in my practice, I know when I run against a wound, wound infection or if I have a UTI come in, I know what the odds are much better. And this is publishable data. You get enough, you track a couple hundred of these. You could say, look, in, in this, where I live, we see E. coli urinary tract infections, and here's what they're sensitive to. And that's going to be effective for you and the guy down the street and the woman three, three miles away, and maybe 100 miles away. So this is the type of thing, and I just use that as an example, this is the type of thing that you can do. Now, with the advancement of electronic records, which for me is the bane of my existence, because every new electronic record system we have is better than the last one, that's like rating disasters, okay? Which disaster is worse than the last one, okay? Our, our newest evidence, our newest record systems, top notch. <laughs> yeah. But if they actually do work, and when they do work, you have a treasure trove of, of data that you can now look at. And as I said, talk about this, I think, find this study to be interesting. I don't want to steal their thunder. But I think that these are the kind of questions we ask all the time that we, or we just act on. And this is the kind of data that we can look at. Vaccinational schedules, I mean, we've all seen in the last 10 years the, the anti-vaccine groups come up, and then we have the question in veterinary medicine of why are we vaccinating the way we do? And then when we really look at the data, it's kind of scary. We came up with these mantras of vaccinations that probably don't match the data. And then practitioners are saying, wait a minute, why am I giving this every year? Why am I giving this, why, why is my rabies a one and then three year, or three and then one year? In cats, do I really need to vaccinate those poor little guys every year? Well, we've started to debunk some of this, but that has to come from practice. And so practice has to generate the new hypotheses that will then end up, may end up back in academia in randomized clinical trials. And I'm not saying that isn't where it should go. It needs to go there. We have that, and then we, some of the, that pipeline now just becomes an open two-way street. And I also will talk to you about the little, there's some other possible models you might be considering. The multiple baseline single case stuff is fascinating. And it's an easy one for me to, 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 to give you an example from my world of managing osteoarthritis. Any chronic disease that you're managing, you know, renal failure, hepatic failure, osteoarthritis is just end-stage joint failure. It's no different, okay? It's, a, it's an organ and it's failing. Well, you can actually do multiple baseline testing. In other words, and we do it all the time in randomized clinical trials. That's how we do them is we treat them with something, we let them go down a baseline, we treat them again. If you do that over time with a variety of things, you can start answering some of these questions, okay? Because you can do baselines. And in my world with, orth with osteoarthritis, there are now some validated um, questionnaires that you can have your, the owners prepare They've become very nice. Well, you can actually do that. And there's many other things you can do this in. Otida externa and a cocker spaniel. Does it ever get over it? No. You are treating multiple things. So you can, you can pick your area and do multiple trial. And it, it takes time. But if you document them, you can provide a lot of information for yourself, your practice, and for your compadres out in pra other practices. And oops, I want to go back. And the clinical practice improvement ideas. This is where I... 
Okay, the academic in me kind of has, you know, gets a little bit uppity about. But with, with the clinical practice improvement, basically what they're, it's a really fascinating area that what they're doing is, is you want to look at all of the possible problems that are going on in once, the comorbidities, and putting those into the whole problem. See, when we do randomized clinical trials, we have exclusion-exclusion criteria that can be so rigid and need to be for that study, so rigid that they really rule out and, and take out a lot of the things that you, we deal with in the clinical side. Okay? That example I gave you before, when we look at non-steroidals for the efficacy in osteoarthritis, we throw out the hepatic disease dogs. We throw out the renal failure dogs because they're not part of the study. We need that data. And so the, the clinical practice improvements idea and, and push has been to incorporate all that data with your statistical analyses and how you do it, you can start to tease out these things. And it is fascinating stuff. It is a little bit more qualitative, but it's needed. And so I encourage you, I could, I, I could give a bad hour lecture on this, but there are a lot of people who give you a good hour lecture on clinical uh, practice improvements, but I think I just wanted to introduce it to you. And so to end, and I think I'm pretty close to time, um, I want to give the great Dr. Church more time than, than myself. I'm just a troll in the salt mine. He's the administrative, you know, genius of the world. Um, come on, I had to do that. Uh-huh. And they're not laughing. This is a tough crowd. I'll just let you know up front, okay? I think that what I really want to do, and yes, I do want to be a bit of a cheerleader and a bit of an evangelical, is, is that the practice-based research is going to be the motor that drives evidence-based medicine forward. Pure and simple. Has to be. Okay? We have to get, a, we have to get there. Okay? And I think we need to continue our, uh, our critical appraisal because it's needed, but the practitioners are the solution to this whole problem. With that, I will show you the reason I get up in the morning. That's my 17-year-old. I hate boys. I really hate boys. And my sniper rifle days are really coming back to be beneficial. But that's in the United States. We all can own as many guns as we want, and I get to use them. And then that, I just every year with some of the events that I do, I always put her face to remind me of how old I'm getting and slow I'm getting, and she's getting... Uh, well, with that, I thank you for your time and patience, and I'm going to allow Dr. Church to now be an academic who really can tell you something important. Thank you. Morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's, it's really pleasing to know that it doesn't seem to make any difference what country you come from. Um, there's clearly something about being an Australian that allows everybody to take the piss out of you without being bothered at all. My new best friend, Steve Budsberg, I met last night. We, we've, we've hit it off just fantastically. But it's right, isn't it, Liz? I mean, you come here, Australians, we just get the piss taken out of us. doesn't matter where it is. It's okay, though. It's all right. One good thing about that is we get used to it. Okay, so um, we're going to follow on. Um, I'm going to follow on from Steve's talk, and a fantastic talk, I thought it was, uh, about just a little more on this whole theme. But can I ask the first question is, how many people in the audience are in general practice? Fantastic. So I'd say about a third. Um, so this is really mainly for you. Um, and for those of you who aren't in general practice, what I'd really like you to do is, if you, if you think this is reasonable, then to tell people in general practice about this. Because the theme that Steve started, and I hope I'm going to be able to continue as eloquently as he started it, is at the moment what we really need to recognise is that the vast, vast majority of anything we do in relation to animal health happens in general practice. 
and it's informed by a set of information and data that actually doesn't happen in general practice, and that is the kernel of the problem, really. Much of the literature, and thus our evidence, is based on articles, etc., that have not been, not been, or aren't necessarily representative of general practice. Steve's talked about that. I'm just going to give you two examples of studies in the literature, or three examples, actually, of studies in the literature which are absolutely bona fide, that suggest that the average life expectancy of dogs is somewhere between 6.8 or 7.5 years. And that's a study that was taken out of the generalised US database from specialist practices. It's a robust study that says the average life expectancy is 6.8 to 7.5 years. I've only ever practised in the United States for less than four months, but everybody I talk to tells me that just can't be right. They also suggest that 70% of animals with immune-mediated hemolytic anaemia are going to be dead within six months of diagnosis. Now, when we stand up and say that, or you read that in general practice, you know something must be wrong. It doesn't make sense. Something's got to be wrong, because that's not your experience, is it? No. So is it poor data analysis? Is it poor data selection? Or is it just poor data? Well, it's none of those, actually. What it is, is data that is not relevant to the particular situation that many people reading this literature find themselves in. What's needed is a mechanism by which we can collect general practices data in a way that allows that data to be analysed relatively simply and robustly. But we think anyway, particularly importantly, does not in in interfere in any way with normal workflows. Because as soon as you do that, you introduce bias and you introduce inefficiencies and you introduce, therefore, further bias and, in fact, a reluctance to participate. We need relevant data and we need to be careful interpreting the data that has the potential to be biased. Biased because of small data sets, small samples that are going to potentially result in potentially poor case definition or cases from referral populations where these cases are not relevant to general practice. And that's going to result in inc incorrect conclusions for numerous reasons, as we've just mentioned. What, what do you think... What do you think is the proportion of cases seen in the United Kingdom in general practice that get referred? What proportion? Someone call out. Please participate. 10%. Fantastic. Any advance or reduction on 10%? 3%. There we are. So we're going to get a few different examples, okay? But let's... Can we settle on around 5%, depending on the area, depending on the practice, depending on the socioeconomic status or the proportion of cases referred? Around 5%. Now, as Steve said, we're all scientists. Some of us, in fact, have graduated from universities where we have a Bachelor of Veterinary Science. But we're all scientists. Now, as a scientist, if someone said to you, I want to use a sample to evaluate your experience and I want to take a 5% sample and I want to make it as highly selective as the cases you refer, and that is the information on which the whole industry is going to run, you're going to say to me, you have to be certifiable. Aren't you? That's crazy. But that's exactly, as a profession, that's exactly what we're doing, or have been doing. Research is essential, there's absolutely no doubt about that, to provide the evidence base for veterinary practice and in order to improve the health and welfare of animals and to improve public health. It's been stated, it's been stated by the RCVS, it's been stated by the BVA, it's been stated by anybody who's got a logical breath in their body. But how are we going to accumulate that research base? when the people who are actually generating the data are flat out like lizards drinking, doing cases, 
seeing, practicing as a general practitioner. There's, there's a paradox. The answer, obviously, I think, has to be organized data collection from general practices in a way that allows it to be analyzed effectively by the people generating the data and or other interested parties, and or other interested parties. So suddenly, suddenly, the concept is about sharing. And that's easy to say, but not necessarily as straightforward to achieve, because we all have vested interests in what we're doing. Everyone who gives these talks has got to have some smart line about um, something to do with evidence, etc., etc. And they're my two. I thank, them, thank Dan O'Neill. He's, he's the constant source of um, intelligence for my um, slides and those sorts of areas. So we all recognise this, but we also need to recognise, be honest with ourselves, okay, about making sure we define the problem entirely. Part of the problem is it can be so hard to see the big picture when you're working at the coalface. And in fact, not being able to see it makes it even more difficult to worry about it when you've got four clients, you've got to call somebody doing this, somebody doing that, something's crashing in the emergency room. You know, I mean, if, you, if, if you're just looking at it in your view, which is entirely understandable, how are you going to see the Ray Lichtenstein masterpiece? You need help. We need help. We can't do this on our own. But whatever it is, that allows us to have this help, it mustn't interfere with the practice workflow. And that's where, as an example, Vet Compass comes in. So this is no longer words. This is no longer some sort of idea for the future. This is not the 787 Dreamliner or whatever it is. This is real. And we can do this as of tomorrow. And we can do it with a number of different data collecting systems. And the one I'm going to concentrate on, because the one I know about most, is Vet Compass. But there are others. And we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about those as well. Vet Compass is a collaborative project based upon the systematic collection of data from participating general practices. Participating general practices that are not all corporate practices, that are not single centres practising the same way. These are people like you, me, out there in general practice collecting data. The data from each participating practice is given a unique identifier, it's pseudonymized and transferred to a central database automatically in a format that facilitates searching at a range of levels. If you like, if you want to do visual, our standard situation is we have a veterinary clinical practice with a practice management system. Steve talks, everybody's got their favorite and their least favorite practice management system. They're often the same thing. It happens to be whatever you were working with last time because it was always better than the new one. All of that goes on. Everybody is. But once we get familiar with it, it sort of tends to work. But no one's in the room, I'm sure, these days is saying, I'm going to do veterinary practice without some form of practice management system. And the point about these, these database systems has to be they have to be independent of the practice management system. We have to have a system that allows us to collect data from multiple different PMSs, otherwise how are we going to effectively share? How are we going to effectively avoid bias? But that's the way it works, right? You see an animal, we have some information about the animal that is given to us from our PMS, and then we put some extra information in after we've seen the animal. If we have different practice management systems, we have different practices perhaps, then how are we going to share that data? It can be done in fairly laborious ways. What we obviously want to have is some sort of system though that as this process occurs, we have to be recognising that 
there can be facilitation. And that's at least partly what Vet Compass does, is facilitate the sharing of data between different practices and indeed within the practice and indeed between different veterinarians or different individuals who want to look at it. That's what Vet Compass is designed to do. What, of course, is absolutely imperative, though, and I keep saying it, so I apologise. I don't apologise, really, because it is so imperative, is we have to recognise that this data collection in the, in the consulting room is very time-sensitive, and we have to be cognisant of that. If this is what our waiting room looks like in a busy consulting period then the business is in trouble. You're probably not doing all that well. That's not what most veterinary practices' waiting rooms look like. They look like that most of the time, right? And so somebody's saying, oh, oh, did you just get that extra data? Could you just actually... And you said, oh, come on, give me a break. Look, out there, all I've got to do is I've got to look after these people. So this has to be invisible. It needs to be relevant to general practice. There needs to be a, a large amount of data so that we can get rid of the noise, so that we can get rid of or address the issue of the fact that the data is dirty. People are always going to say, this is not as robust, this is not as well controlled as a stratified clinical trial with 25 cases where the phenotype of each patient is meticulously defined in large amounts of expensive resource being applied to each case. Because that's not going to, hap that's not going to happen in the first instance. This is, if you like, let's, let's be honest, this is dirty data. So we need to have large amounts of it to make sure we get rid of some of the dirt, to reduce the noise. It has to be collected within general practice and collected without bias. That means it has to be obtained with minimal, if any, interference to normal practice workflows. It's very, very clear from multiple psychological studies. When you ask someone about a particular series of cases or a particular treatment program, the answers you get from those individuals' opinions will be almost irrelevant and certainly not appropriate for the actual answers. They always tend to overestimate or underestimate because people are trying to please you in some way. The, the results of trials, etc., where um, uh, questionnaires are involved, can be extremely misleading. So we need consulting room, room invisibility, and that's what Vet Compass is about. And just to give you an idea of where we're up to now, this is around 470 practices are participating throughout the United Kingdom. Um, I, I take the point that there's perhaps a few less in, in uh, Northern Ireland and Wales than there are in England and certainly growing in Scotland. And what this means is that we now have, uh, and these are not completely up-to-date figures, but around 11 million, 11.3 million cases, uh, episodes of care, we've got a significant number of unique animals. So 2 million dogs, 1.3, 1.4 million cats. With that sort of data, with that sort of data, we can afford to have and recognise that some of it is going to be a little noisy, but the point is we can um, look at a range of different things in a broad sense. And we can use that data also to generate computer-driven hypotheses. What do we collect? We collect a number of different things, including identifiers, demographics, and clinical material. This presentation is certainly not enough time for me to be able to, to uh, elaborate on that specifically. We've, we've had the whole process approved by the various organisations within the United Kingdom so that we know that this material and this data being collected is ethically sound 
There are no confidentiality issues. This is an opt-out option, so people opt-out if they don't want to have their data recorded. As I mentioned before, it's pseudonymized. We take away, um, and we collect only the four, four areas of the postcode so that we can locate the animals roughly. We can still do spatial analysis, but we're not going to be able to identify the particularly unusual black dog de Bordeaux on that street in that particular small village. We have stated support from a numerous number of organisations, um, both within the United Kingdom and continental Europe. And we also now, fortunately, have uh, international connections in a number of different groups in various stages of progression, meaning, though, that now the opportunity for us to compare general practice data, not just between Basingstoke, Bristol and Brighton, but between Basingstoke, Bristol, Brighton, Brisbane and Bogota. No, not Bogota, I made that up. But multiple areas. The data collection is not essentially driven or facilitated, but, but we have an opportunity, and, and you have an opportunity if you are interested, in using a common veterinary nomenclature database that will facilitate the way that we can at least search the data in the first instance. And, and that database is known as Venom, which is a free software available to anybody who's interested. As someone who's a mathematician, almost certainly in the audience, you can see that this, this word has 10 letters, a number of which are the same. The number of different ways you can spell this word is approximately factorial six. There's a lot of different ways that you can spell gingivitis. And in searching through veterinary records, I can assure you the veterinary community in the United Kingdom has explored all of them multiple times. If you're searching a computer file for gingivitis and there are misspellings, there is no way that you can avoid that. So that will introduce, if you like, a component of selection. So one of the things that we're interested in doing is utilising a standardised and acceptable term for various aspects of veterinary care. The Veterinary Nomenclature Data Dictionary, it's a collaborative initiative involving a number of UK institutions developing a standardised veterinary medical terminology. There's a range of different um, uh, categories, if you like. It's open access codes. You have Spanish and German translations. Um, you can look at it any time you like on, the, on the, the website. It's managed by a number of different um, organisations involved in a multi-institutional committee responsible for maintaining the data. It's incorporated within the majority of UK veterinary school clinical record systems, numerous practice management systems, as well as insurance and microchip databases. Um, the Venom Coding Group as I said, contains a range of different inst university institutions and other institutions that are involved um, and multiple veterinary practices, both generic and, um, if you like, bespoke, uh, are involved with it. Perhaps most interestingly, recently, we've now um, able to deliver this through a web-based portal hosted by Vet Compass. And so the idea is that this set of codes that will allow us to have specific breeds, reasons for visits, presenting complaints, diagnostic tests, procedures and diagnoses are all available. As I said before, you, it mustn't disrupt the normal workflow because we know this is very time sensitive. We think Venom facilitates this, but it obviously isn't essential. It, it's, it's what I was thinking I would do is, is, if I can, is just show you, give you a quick demonstration of Venom. Um, this is the URL uh, that that you would have in your practice 
PMS. It would be just simply a space where you have a URL. And the idea is if you're sitting there and you've just seen an animal and it's got um, pyoderma, you just pipe in POI and there you are. You can just click and yes, you'll have pyoderma or you have DIA and they've got diagnosis not made or anything, so I'm going to put in an R and then I have diarrhea or I take it away and I'm going to put in a B and then I've got diabetes mellitus or I can do whatever I want really. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's just, it's just a drop down menu. That's how quick it works. I'm just connected to the net. You'd be connected to the net. So I'm not suggesting that it isn't, um, modifying what might happen in the workplace, but it's certainly not going to interrupt the workflow. You don't have to type out vomiting if that was the problem. You just obviously have a pick list and it works that quickly. Of course, if you have slow internet connection, then it's going to be a little slower, but we're not talking about a large amount of transference of data here. What of course is incredibly important about this is this is all about, this is all about facilitating general practice. This is all about enhancing general practitioners' ability to look at their records, to evaluate what they do, and to involve themselves in clinical research programs using what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So one of the things that we believe is really important, and we all believe this, and Steve mentioned this as well, is that we need to make sure that we enhance the overall experience of the participating practitioner. We also need to make sure that there are potentially advantages for the whole practice in this sort of activity. So one of those things is that we can, um, if you like, add in, if you want, add in certain components or uh, drivers from the practice to the person on the consulting room. So this is an example where if I've put in pyoderma, I can also mention that in this particular practice situation, we like to use this antibiosis strategy or we are to do this or we want to do that, depending on what it is. But there's the reminder in there for the particular participator that this particular diagnosis brings with it some uh, associations that the particular practice at the time might be interested in. So it's a cue. It's just a reminder. It's an aid memoir. But what we're talking about then with Venom web-based coding is that we have multiple, multiple data fields, and not just diagnoses, but procedures, presenting complaints, et cetera, et cetera. The, the computer is, in fact, to some extent cognitive. So if you start putting in something, I could, I can, I'm not going to go back. I don't have time. But if you put in... For instance, chocolate or Cadbury's, and you can't find anything. So then you go back and you put in um, theophylline or theobromine intoxication. Then the next time that you put in chocolate, it'll bring up intoxication because that was what you looked at or that's what you selected last time you put in Cadbury's. Or if you happen to have that with a car accident, it, it has, if you like, a memory. Um, it's obviously going to be of benefit to the practitioners It also, in, and the practices themselves, depending on how you want to link up associations with it. And, of course, because it is, in fact, being managed as a live database, it has the opportunity to facilitate a live national surveillance system. Of course, not everybody's not for everybody, and it doesn't have to be. The point is it's there, and it's relatively straightforward, as long as your practice management system is happy to insert a, literally a URL into the PMS interface. So we're collect, collecting this data in real time, which allows us to publish information in a range of different ways, including the traditional veterinary literature, but also other types of, other types of documentation, if you like, that are going to be um, perceived to be, or indeed will be, reaching different audiences. So we're looking at a broader and more aggressive penetration of the community.
depending on whether we're a vet and reading an article in the literature, we're looking at a website that's modified, one of the website modifications being supported by RCVS, which allows us to look at regional distributions of disease. Again, you can see that on the RCVS website or the Vet Compass website. It also allows the practices to inform themselves and if they choose to do so, to benchmark against other practices. And of course, it also allows us to inform other stakeholders, such as breeders. It's a database, but in fact, it's not a database. It has a database. What it really is, is a philosophy, as are others, which is our cumulative veterinary experiences can be harnessed to improve companion animal welfare. This is the impact from big data. It's already happening. It's been happening. This is some of the peer-reviewed publications that have come out of uh, Vet Compass database, written by postgraduate students, undergraduate students, who are having written some of these abstracts and articles, then are more aware of the benefits of how they record data in their general practices in which they work and follows on. So we're hoping that this is a whole process that will inform and re-inform the emerging veterinary community and educate and re-educate the current veterinary community. As Steve mentions, this is a facilitation for a range of different areas. And, and, it, and it benefits the practices that are participating in a range of different ways. And we have a number of different collaborators, including various veterinary groups and, of course, universities. And so this is, in fact, absolutely a bridge between the data that's being collected, people who are interested in analysing that data, and working with people in general practice to facilitate and publish that information. As a very small example, just a selection of the abstracts presented at this year's BSAVA from the Vet Compass database. And you can see, well, you can't see, but if, if you look down here, you will see these are all sorts of different people from all sorts of different walks of life, including multiple universities and also veterinary practices. And it's about making sure that the veterinary profession is continues to be respected because we act on information, not on, not on emotion, not on anecdote. And I, I can't improve on this particular uh, paper. It was a couple of years ago now where Carol Perry and her cat Tia were particularly concerned because of um, a fox attack. And we had a cluster and Dan O'Neill had to answer a number of different questions from a range of different journalists about the problems of fox attacks in cats in the United Kingdom. So a quick, a quick review of Vet Compass data at the time and looking at 145 cats in the Vet Compass database, there were 79 or 5 in 10,000 confirmed and 130 or 9 in 10,000 suspected fox fight injuries to cats. Taken alone, I guess we'd be worried about foxes damaging our cats and maybe foxes are going to be a problem. On the other hand, in comparison, there were 541 per 10,000 cat bite injuries and 196 in 10,000 cats presented because of road traffic accidents. So in other words, other cats are 40 times more dangerous and cows are four, 14 times more dangerous and a greater risk than foxes. Um, don't worry though, Tia and Carol, we'll keep on looking and if there's a sort of a surge in fox attacks on cats, we'll know about it and we'll be able to get everybody alerted and looking at it. It's a very, very simple example, but it's just a reminder of what this data can do for us. I have multiple examples. I'm certainly not going to um, spend the time that you might want to ask Steve and I questions on covering those, but as an example, from our database, 
a very clear indication in the United Kingdom that dogs, the incidence of the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus in the dog has a significant seasonal variation. We are much more likely to make a diagnosis of diabetes mellitus in the dog in the autumn and winter time than in the spring and the summer. That is absolutely not true for diabetes mellitus in the cat. And interestingly, when we look at the literature, this is identical to the incidence of type 1 diabetes mellitus in children in the United Kingdom, which is a fascinating observation. I think you'll, you'll agree with me. And, and one of the apparent explanations is there is going to be a significant increase in subclinical viral infections in the UK community, be they human or dog, with viruses that are otherwise clinically insignificant, but certainly upregulate components of the immune system and therefore potentially increase the risk of us developing immune-mediated islatitis. This is research work that's been going on in people and now as a result of this data from Vet Compass is research work that we're engaged in um, with our canine diabetic dog population utilising a number of collaborators in general practice. Well, this study, which was we started out to look at potential spatial variations or distributions of, of hyperthyroidism in the cat population in the United Kingdom. And what it found was that the prevalence of hyperthyroidism in the UK cat population, or sorry, the spatial distribution of hyperthyroidism in the UK cat population is, is pretty much as expected on the basis of the density of the UK cat population. So there is no spatial variation or difference in the UK cat population. What we did find though, and for those, for those clinicians amongst you, how many people can remember treating a hyperthyroid cat that was a purebred cat? I don't see any hands going up. So in a way we knew that already, but what was amazing to us when we actually looked at this data and we had, you know, at this particular time, 2.2, 2.5, 2.2 thousand, 2,250, two and a quarter thousand hyperthyroid cats. <coughs> Quite a high prevalence. Spatial distribution, not significantly different to spatial distribution of all cats. But purebred cats were highly protected against hyperthyroidism. Purebred cats do not get hyperthyroidism. Of course, the odd one will. But as a generalisation from real time in the United Kingdom, your data tells us they don't get it. They do not get it. Now, that's fascinating. And that's corrected for age, socioeconomic status, polar neighbourhood, etc., etc., the multivariate analysis. Why would that be? We have absolutely no idea, and Vet Compass isn't going to be able to tell us the answer. What Vet Compass has done, or what that data from general practice has done, is generate, if you like, a computer-driven hypothesis that allows us now to go and look at why that might be happening in the UK cat population. And I don't need to remind you, probably, that this disease, adenomatous hyperplasia of the cat, is a particularly common disease in people as well, affecting middle-aged females. And it has therefore not only relevance to the UK cat population, to the international cat population, but also to, as the, for the cat as, if you like, the canary in the cage and as a sentinel for human disease. All because of a BS, uh, sorry, an MSI study looking at hyperthyroidism in the cat. We started off as it being a general practice database. Now we're actually engaged in bringing in specialist practices as well so that we can do some of the research that will allow us to look at the differences between both the, um, uh, the specialist practices and 
and the um, and the general practices. We'll just see if this one works as well. I just want to really show you how you can look. We've got one minute. This might not let me in here just because of... We'll give it one more second. Sometimes it won't let you in. I did, I thought, I'll do it one more time. Thank you, Dan. Okay, I think I might be blocked because of the room. Let me do that one more time. Right, always good to have a demonstration where it doesn't work at the end. What I wanted to show you was the database and how quickly it works, but it's not going to let me in on this particular go. So um, what I'll do is I'll quit on that and just say that, as Steve mentioned, the other issue is how we fund this research, and that is going to be important. One of the things that's important, of course, is for people who are interested in funding it, recognising that this is very, very powerful material and it has far-reaching and wide ramifications. And we have been successful in a number of different arenas in terms of recruiting support for this particular project, as have been other colleagues. I want to leave you with two different thoughts, really. One was Steve mentioned the Banfield population and the advantage of how that works in general practice. It's an incredible resource. There's absolutely no doubt about it. One of the things we have to bear in mind is, though, as Steve also mentioned, this is a somewhat um, constrained set of clinical data because the Banfield group are, if you like, instructed in a particular set of protocols for their activities. So while it can be very helpful in some areas, it doesn't have the richness or the heterogeneity of multiple different small practice groups, large practice groups, etc., etc. I'd also hate for you to think that there's not only, or there is only one general practice database collecting system in the United Kingdom. Many of you will have been familiar with and have heard of SAVSNET, and that is another uh, general practice database collecting system. If, if I'm asked, as I'm frequently asked, what's the difference between VetCompass and SAVSNET, the answer, I guess, specifically, is that SAVSNET is particularly interested in collecting extra questions on particular cases, and so it generally has extra questions that you're asked to fill in when you're in your practice mode. It's not always the case, but that's the, one of the things, whereas if we have anything about Vet Compass, we are absolutely com completely committed to the concept that it should be invisible, people don't know it's there, and you just simply carry on. And when you don't have a block on the internet to get into the Vet Compass database, you can then search it at your leisure by simply typing in in exactly the same way as I typed in the Venom codes, and up came all of those. Up would come all of those cases. So it just remains for me to recognise and acknowledge a number of different people who facilitated the Vet Compass team and a number of different institutions who have supported the Vet Compass initiative and who are driving, therefore, the collection of general practice data and the facilitation of evidence-based veterinary medicine from general practice. But the, peop but, the, but the most important group who we need to thank so far and continue to thank is, in fact, you guys who are in general practice who are allowing us to look at this data in a completely and utterly automated way. Thank you very much for your attention. And I'm sure Steve and I can answer questions. <laughs>